Hey, it's Jennifer. I wanted to pop in quick here to give you the mid-September update on our listener support challenge underway. We set ourselves the goal of adding 100 new listener supporters in the second half of 2020, and I'm so excited to report that we are now at 60 new supporters. Thank you. A garden does not grow overnight. It grows over a season and many seasons. And this odd but still oddly growing season of this odd but oddly growing year, it's maturing beautifully. I know you hear appeals all the time, especially now in this particularly politicized moment as we head to November. And I really appreciate the urgency of that. I appreciate, too, that we all have to make realistic decisions about how to allocate our resources, from our time to our attention to our money and what we value and vote for with that money. If you're able to make a donation one time or as a recurring donor, thank you. If not, just your listening to these words is its own form of important support for these civil and expanding conversations in our world. You make my work both possible and a joint communal effort. Together, we plant the changes and we grow the world for the better. If you would like to be a new listener supporter of this impactful work and help us meet our challenge, thank you. Simply go to the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com and follow the links by clicking the support button. Like all art, the art of gardening and the artistry of any gardener adds to the world at large. Now enjoy this conversation about the journey of one such very sculptural garden artist. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Dustin Gimbel is a landscape designer and large-scale outdoor ceramic artist inspired by the botanical world and based in Southern California. I am pleased to welcome him today to share more about his journey, working his way through school and some notable plantsman internships, to this summer installing his first public exhibition at the Sherman Library and Gardens in Corona del Mar. Welcome, Dustin. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with um, what do you do every day? Describe for listeners your current relationship to plants professionally and personally, Dustin? Mm, yeah, well, I am a landscape designer. That's how I make my living. And I've done that for uh, going on 14 years now. And before that, I worked in botanic gardens and nurseries. And uh, it's basically been my whole working life. And then personally, I am still obsessed with plants. And uh, I have a fairly large garden for a a city lot and uh, it's divided into different areas of interest and I'm doing pandemic gardening with like way more tomatoes than I'll ever be able to use <laughs> and um, yeah I mean I'm always thinking about plants so that's my relationship to plants. <laughs> where so that uh, listeners know where do you live and where do you garden and where do you have a a lot that's slightly 
larger than the normal lot? I live in Long Beach, California, and um, my neighborhood would have been the suburbs, but now it's pretty densely populated, you know, with apartment buildings and multi-unit housing. I have a little 100-year-old craftsman on a 8,500 square foot lot, which is a little bit bigger than what's normal around here. And that's where I do my gardening and experiments and uh, where my ceramic studio. Okay. So you have a hundred year old craftsman. You're doing pandemic gardening like the rest of us. I read a funny article uh-huh. the other day about people having bean buying remorse that like they got the flour and the yeast and a lot of beans in the beginning. And now they don't know what to do with all those beans. And that thought that was very funny. Um, as I recognize gardeners around me saying they, you know, have an enormous number of zucchini and <laughs> coming in. Right. <laughs> so your yeah. garden there is both vegetable and ornamental. Describe your garden for us a little bit. Well, it's it has been sort of um, a place where I can do my, you know, for, as far as ornamentally, do all sorts of experiments. I have um, sculptures in the garden that I've made, um, you know, topiary and uh, tr- it's a trial ground for plants so that I don't, I'm not just springing things on, on clients that I haven't tried before. Um, yeah, it's, it's a garden that's designed to be sort of an adventure. There's a, um, a pendulous acacia arbor. So acacia pendula that you sort of walk through and there's a boardwalk and there's ponds and, Everyone that comes to this garden, you know, finds it kind of like a remarkable oasis because, you know, it's a very urban neighborhood and uh, you come into this green space. uh, It's completely different. So you mentioned that you have sculptures running through it. Tell us a little bit about how long you've been involved in sculpture and Describe visually, just briefly for now, because we'll get into it a lot more deeply as we go along in our conversation, but kind of the nature of those sculptures and their their interplay with the garden itself on this adventure, as you describe it. Yeah, I think the, well, the first sculpture I did, um, I, I guess I was kind of wanting to have something that was not plants uh, that would draw your eye along the landscape and be playful and also uh, create a sense of mystery. Mm -hmm. And I had been up in Washington state. um, Actually, Dan Hinckley told me about this. uh, There's this beach where you can get these concretions and they're like little cannonballs and marbles. And they're these perfect polished like rocks and they just pop out of the cliff like that. And so I had a collection. I thought, Oh, if I lived up there, I'd, I would put these on rebar and I would make these sculptures. And of course I don't live up there. So it's not, so I thought I'll make my own. So I did hypertufa balls, mm. which are kind of like little people describe them as meatballs on a skewer. <laughs> and so there's these uh, different heights of these kind of meatball sculptures that run uh, kind of like a snake through uh, the front garden. Um, and it's like kind of grassy and meadowish. And then it goes under a lemon tree and it's just creates um, a certain mystery and interest in the garden. So that's where I started. That was like 10 years ago when I bought this house, I, I made those sculptures and that was kind of the beginning of the totems. 
So before we go more deeply into your kind of garden design aesthetic and your sculptural ethos, take us back a little bit into where where you grew up and how you were raised that the idea of hypertufa meatballs on a stick in a beautiful garden would even be a thing for you? Like what were the, mm-hmm. the people and places and plants that grew you into who you are now, Dustin? Well, I think of, of my early development, it was my grandparents and um, my grandmother was interested in gardening and my grandfather was even more interested in gardening. This is my mom, my mom's side. And he was into raising orchids and um, I spent a lot of time with them and um, I had a lot of free reign in the garden. They would give me sort of projects and I would be learning. And um, there wasn't any really art in their garden, you know, like, except for like the normal garden art kind of things. But, um, but just that love of gardening and that sort of permission to do, to, you know, grow what you want uh, that came from my grandparents. And were they there in California or where were they? Yes, they, they lived not far from where I live now uh, in Orange County. And they had, you know, just a suburban lot. But mm. I was allowed to just dig holes and plant pumpkins. And um, I would help, you know, repot orchids and, you know, plant sweet peas and all, you know, I was, they just let me do whatever I want, yeah. basically, which was awesome. Which was awesome because that... I think is what gives us permission to be adventurous, right? Is yeah, that un. Oh, I think absolutely, yeah. yeah. Having that kind of kindness in your life is really important. I like that. I like it. It is a kindness, and we don't maybe necessarily even think about it that way. But it's a great kindness and gift in our lives, whenever it might come, and from whomever it might come. So, okay, so you start out there, and so you're a, a Southern Californian, born and raised, and you like when? Am I wrong? Did I just hear a like? Oh well, we yeah we we um, my parents moved to Northern California when I was about ten, mm-hmm. and so from ten to eighteen, we lived on a little like a hobby ranch in. Um, the Sierra foothills. And so that was, um, I mean, that definitely was, would play into like, I love using ornamental grasses in my garden design. Um, cause it's sort of that Oak Savannah thing that is just so delightful. Um, so, and there I also had a lot of, uh, free reign because we had five or six acres. I can't remember what, how much it was, but, um, I made a vegetable garden and I did rock walls and again, basically whatever I wanted. And, uh, yeah. And then I moved to Southern California and then I started working at nurseries and going to college. And so first of all, I want to acknowledge that like early sculptural work of the the rock walls and that like ornamental grass, um, I, that iconic feeling of grasslands in California as being um, kind of elemental to your work. And I think of like the the rounded, you know, granitic rock of the Sierra foothills and that sculptural feel as, as being an interesting like thing right there. So you are there from 10 to 18, which is pretty formative years. And you then go down South. Where do you go to college and do you study plants or like, how does this morph into yeah. plant life? Ultimately, I got a, uh, a BS in horticulture from uh, Cal Poly mm-hmm. Pomona, mm-hmm. 
And uh, all along, I was putting myself through college working at nurseries. So I worked at a little, a little place called Herds Country Gardens. And it was an awesome small nursery that uh, they would bring in all kinds of rare plants, whatever uh, Mary Lou could get. And uh, just was totally learning new plants every day, every week. And then uh, I interned at Heron's Wood, and that was a huge leap forward oh. for me. And sort of like plant diversity, and you know, just so many varieties. And then um, I got my degree. I wanted more experience, and I ended up going to Great Dixter in England, and then to uh, RHS Wisley and doing their diploma program. So um, it was pretty broad, yeah, uh, horticultural experience. Yeah, what a great like trifecta of gardens to to learn and grow in and so how old were you when you first started the internship at Heronswood how long did that last and what year would that have been I was uh, that was 2001 I was 23 that was just six months but that was I mean that that six months I it could have been two years I learned so much it was um yeah, it was incredible. And so where were they in the process uh, right then? Like, w- w- was the nursery still open or had they already sold to? Um... Yeah, it was it was a tumultuous year yeah. because they had um, they had sold the nursery the year before. And then mm. Burpee started to assert itself. And at some point in the middle of my time there, there was this, they were going to make cuts and I think Dan and Robert realized that what they had signed up for wasn't what was actually going to happen. It was also, I think this was around the time of uh, like a, the dot-com crash or something. I can't remember how that factored in, but that was, had something to do with uh, that whole thing. So yeah, it was an interesting, tumultuous and amazing yeah. summer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story. So you, you get, a real education in like the business side as well as the public garden side and nursery side of life there. And then talk about, did you go to Great Dixter and Wisley after you finished your degree or was that still part of yes. it? Yeah. So ex- talk about that a little. Yeah. I finally finished my degree. It took me forever because I was paying, you know, I, ne- I never took on loans. And so I was just yeah. working nearly full time and going to school nearly full time. And then, um, I, I reached out to Dan and said, you know, I'd love to work abroad. What do you think? And he's, he's, you know, immediately said, you should go to Great Dixter. And so I, um, I was there for six months and I fell in love with the idea of being a head gardener. It's funny to look back and think of all the different things that I thought right. I wanted to do because right. I thought I would, I thought I would own a nursery when I was in uh, college you know, then I thought I would be a head gardener. So then I was, you know, at Dixter and then I went to Wisley because Wisley was the place if you wanted to be a head gardener. And then, you know, now I'm a garden designer. Uh, it's the longest thing I've ever done. <laughs> um, so, and, and I'm a sculptor too now, which is another thing that I never thought, uh, you know, that I would be doing. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting. And I think these trajectories are some of the stories that listeners are really keen to know a little bit more about. And so I have one question for you uh, in terms of that first internship at Heronswood. How did you even know about Heronswood and how did you apply for that internship? How, how, like, how did that work? That's a great story, actually, I think. Um, So that the story that's like something I could impart to people, especially maybe younger people Mm -hmm. that 
is just like try for things because originally I was um, at the community college getting my, you know, getting set up to go to Cal Poly and I was in a, uh, they actually had a horticulture program. So I took a propagation class and the instructor said, you know, Hey, there's this uh, international plant propagators um, scholarship. They'll pay you for you to go to the, the conference. You just have to get there. And so it was like room and board in the conference. And I, and at that time I was like, Oh, you know, this isn't, this is a national thing. I'll probably won't get it. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. And if I don't get it, no big deal. And I got it. And then that first morning I sat down for breakfast and um, Eric Hammond, who at that time was the the lead propagator at Heronswood was at the table. And um, he said, Oh, I work at Heronswood. I'm like, Oh my God, I, I love that nursery. I read the catalog. And, and he's like, Oh, you should do an internship. And it was just like, I could do that. <laughs> and, um, and then the, I applied, I applied that year and they already had um, Jonathan Wright who uh, worked at Chanticleer for many years. And now he's at, um, oh, I can't remember the name, but it's in uh, Indiana, uh, Indianapolis. Uh, they, cha- they just changed the name. Um, but um, anyway, he got it that year. And then I thought, Oh, cause he was coming from Longwood. It's like, oh, I don't have the pedigree to get this internship. <laughs> but I just, I just applied again the next year, and I got it. And uh, yeah, so I think perseverance and just like try for things. That that would be my my lesson for people. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Dustin Gimbel is a landscape designer based in Southern California, sharing his journey from American college student interested in plants to an eye-opening internship at Heronswood Garden with plantsman Dan Hinckley, to now intrepid ceramic artist creating large-scale outdoor art for public gardens. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. I wanted to share with you a message I got from a kind, kind listener this week. She wrote, Hi, Jennifer. I just want to say thank you. I've been listening to your podcasts from episode one and am really, really enjoying them. I've lost my job due to COVID-19 and am struggling with minor depression, but listening to your podcasts really helps me. So thank you. I can't wait for the new episode each week. Stay safe. End quote. Now, to receive a note like this in these times is a serious and forceful gut check. I know these civil gardening conversations matter, but I sometimes forget on just how many levels that they can matter to someone who needs to hear some aspect of them, needs to hear that their impulse to garden is valuable, that it makes a difference. Someone who needs to hear the unorthodox and sometimes meandering pathway of another person, like Dustin's, to someone who needs to be reminded to visualize the many, many pathways through difficult times. Times when looking ahead seems murky at best. I recall that I started these conversations for these very reasons. I needed to hear that this relationship I am called to with plants and my garden 
is meaningful. I had been told one too many times that my impulse to garden was silly or inconsequential or not productive or life-changing, that it didn't make the world or me or my girls better or safer, that it was a waste of time and money. And there were sad, dark days when I came close to believing this. Except that in my heart of hearts, in the marrow of my bones, I knew it did matter. I could see that it did matter, that it did change things and my life and the life of my girls for the better. And it took everything I had to turn back to the plants and the garden for the answers. And as it always does, the garden saved me. I have no answers for these times, except to offer out the answer of the plants, which is to lean into what comes. Adapt. Keep trying to push out a bud here, a root there, a node off of that lower branch over there. Use your biggest, most open, peripheral thinking to see where some combination of your brain and heart are urging you to tend. You have purpose, and your plant love and garden life are part of it. Look to these for both solace and that jolt of creative spark you might be seeking or needing. The plants of your place, large and small, common and rare, they will hold you through so much if you look to them. As Dustin says towards the end of our conversation today, quote, I love the idea of people looking at my art and being inspired to make art in their own garden. Giving ourselves permission to make our art, whatever that might be, adds a great deal to our, to all of our lives. End quote. So continue as you first started in the garden, as a student of receptivity and curiosity. You will continue to grow. We're back now to our conversation with landscape designer and outdoor ceramic artist, Dustin Gimbel, based in Southern California. As we come back, he's sharing more about an internship he had the joy of experiencing at the United Kingdom's Great Dixter Garden. I mean, well, Great Dixter, it's incredible, it's sort of magical place. It's, you know, it's a medi- there's a medieval building. I was, I was living in a medieval building, which was like, you know, as an American, it's like, <laughs> wow. So many dedicated people. Obviously, it draws people who are just really passionate about gardening. And then also the visitors that come. So you just are exposed to so much. But, you know, as far as like the specifics of Dixter, I think, um, you know, Christo's legacy is really about always having something of interest in the garden, no matter what season it is. And so I would say, and oh, also the meadows too, there are a whole other thing. But as far as like sort of gardening, um, they would always have something waiting in the wings. And it was kind of, you know, more like theatrical where yeah. the moment something goes over and there's room, you plant in annuals or, you know, pop in a this or that. They have bulbs and then 
you know, they tidy them up and then they would put something else in. And it's like, just cram whatever you can and always have something, you know, ready to come up and, and keep that, um, that show going, yeah. which is so different from what I do professionally because it's Southern California and people basically want a very static, you know, beautiful garden every day of the year because we have such a, an even climate. But, um, you know, at that time, that was something I was really interested in. And meadow making, which um, the meadows there are incredible. And, you know, I mean, I think it's true what, what you point out there, which is, um, and I, I think especially in the West, maybe we, we handle these things a little differently, especially the mild climate West. But that sort of taking succession planting um, and leveling it up to the art of choreography mm-hmm. is uh, one of the great joys of a place like Dixter or uh, Whistley, you know, and their long borders. And um, so that's, those are wonderful influences early in your life. And I can see, you know, I, as I recall Heronswood of that era, oh, absolutely. you know, and, and now yeah. it's a little different under tribal ownership, but that like artwork and, and interesting, innovative sculptural work running through the garden is so key to the, the joy of what Heronswood was at that point. Uh, well, I think it still is. And I think Dan has, um, you know, I think even more, he, he's learned the lessons of Dixter and they have uh, annuals and plants, uh, you know, that are, that are ready to mm, pop mm-hmm. in or different things to keep things interesting throughout the, you know, the time that they're open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So you, um, this is so great. What a fabulous story you have. So you go to Whistley and you get your pedigreed certification. <laughs> I love that term um, of uh, the horticultural uh, I forget what it's their a degree in p- practical horticulture. Okay. And then you come back. Tell us from there. Yeah. So I was recommended by a friend who's a head gardener to, um, some gentlemen that owned, or they had purchased like a castle or something in the South and they wanted to turn it into, you know, this, you know, fabulous property that would be uh, a restoration project and it would be a hotel and they'd want, you know, like just quintessential, every kind of quintessential English gardening. So it'd have long borders and it'd have, you know, a service garden with vegetables and fruit. And, and it was like coming out of Wisley was like, Oh, this is amazing. And um, it was right at the end, obviously of my time there. And I just thought, you know, I haven't been home in like two years. So I just need to go home and just be home. (laughs) So, um, so that's what I did. I came home and then it, I was uh, staying with a friend and it was like, wow, it's like warm and nice. And I don't know. I just, <laughs> I think um, also the idea of being a, uh, a visa holder again and, and having a work permit where you're tied to an employer um, didn't appeal to me. If I had more wiggle room, I might've taken that job, but I was really itching to have my own garden anyway. So I decided to stay and then I started like I had done some garden design for clients uh, through the nursery and whatnot. And then I reached out to people saying like, I just want to take pictures of what we've done before for a portfolio. And I thought I would probably work, you know, in a botanic garden. And then right away people were like, Oh, we want you to do this other area. Our friend needs help. And like all of a sudden I was a full-time garden designer. Um, And so I just kind of fell into it from, from the little bit of work that I'd done before I went to England yeah. And, and so 
you start designing gardens in Southern California and the universe says, this is good and makes it abundant for you, apparently. Um, and so you were on this path when you already described the, you know, mm -hmm. balls on a stick. Talk about the evolution of, of this artistic bent to your work and that, that element of expression for well, you. Well, I think I had been dreaming of, um, and that some of this ties back into England, I had been dreaming of having a garden that would have, you know, sort of artistic follies or something, you know, plants are beautiful, but having that human element of art in a garden um, just can bring another, whole other level of magic. And so I was, you know, working my butt off and saving up and then, uh, was able to buy this house. And so it's like, well, I'm going to, you know, figure out a way to incorporate art. And so originally it was, um, you know, I made the concrete leaves. Um, I made, um, I found this uh, face at a, someone's art project of like plaster face at a, a thrift store. And then I made a latex mold and I did concrete casts of that. And I'd have these like little hidden like faces that would be kind of spooky in the plantings and so i just think i've always been dreaming of that but a lot of it was like when i lived uh especially when i was at wisley because i was there for a whole two years i had a car and i would drive to national trust properties english heritage wherever i could go that was cool gardens and then uh, just spent a lot of time there and so i think the follies the art in the garden that was something that really kind of um stuck with me Right. And so walk us through like learning to do some of this casting and what some of your greatest inspirations are. Like you have a very distinctive style um, and it's it's not exact plant replica, but it's very, it, it refers, there's like this constant conversation, it seems, between the plants you love, the charismatic mm. plants you love, and the forms you take into well, for ceramic. The, um, for this exhibition, I decided, because it was a botanic garden, to do a botanical theme, just because that was kind of an easy, it seemed like an easy, um, an easy theme that would be, you know, inexhaustible because it would be, uh, mm -hmm. I needed to have so many pieces because it was supposed to be, you know, pretty large scale sculptures throughout the Botanic Garden. So that's why I picked plants, obviously, because I love plants. I, you know, it, all that made it easy. I mean, I would also love to do an exhibition of something that would be insects or something completely, you know, other. But um, for this exhibition, yeah, a lot of it was like, what plants are sculptural? How can I make it more interesting without trying to copy nature and mm -hmm. how can i recreate that awe that people feel when you first meet a plant how can i take something that i notice when i'm hiking or i see in the garden that's a very small element of a plant that i think is just you know sculptural interesting whatever and then blowing that up to a scale that you can't um you can't just can't walk by it so that was a lot of what you know, the Sculptura Botanica exhibitions about. Um, but yeah, the early stuff, is, some of it was botanical, uh, concrete stuff, but I also like, I went through a phase where I made concrete diamonds. Yeah, anyway. So tell us about some of those evolutions. Like, what do you, when you say a concrete diamond, are you talking about like the yes. diamond so I wear like on my finger, if I wear a diamond on right, my finger, which exactly. I don't? So it was like the idea of, um, you know, like, a lot of what I'm interested in is like, 
saying screw you to what is, um, you know, what, what's supposed to be done. And so the idea of something that's precious, that's made out of a very common material, and also like having your garden littered with mm -hmm. diamonds, I thought that would be funny. So I made big diamonds and little diamonds. <laughs> and actually, in a way, the, the diamond, the diamond obsession led me to, to uh, the sculpture with um, ceramics, because I started doing these origami um, there were plastic forms basically. And then I would pour, I would tape them up and I would pour concrete in them. And then I had, uh, I found this product that was, you could pour it very thin. It was super strong concrete and you would sort of, sort of coat and coat and coat. And then you'd pull off the plastic and you'd have a pot. So I was making these geometric pots. And then I made uh, this sort of, again, kind of a diamond shape, but it's like, like two pyramids put together on the bottom part. And that was the point pot. Mm -hmm. And so I, partnered with um, the gals at Potted up in LA to make it in ceramic. And then from that, I was talking about ceramics all the time because we were doing, you know, t glaze tests. And a friend said, oh, you know, my, my brother teaches ceramics. You should. So then I said, yeah, why don't I take ceramics class? And that's when I just like jumped down the rabbit hole of ceramics. Right. And um, the I think you refer to it in somewhere, some maybe interview or on your website that this Pandora's box, when once it opened, there was just no going back oh, yeah, for it was, you. It was um, it, in a lot of ways. I think ceramics and sculpture are so much like gardening. Are all the, the the things that I find appealing about gardening? It's like inexhaustible, you know, varieties and plants, inexhaustible techniques and colors and choice in ceramics and you know you can take one element and use it this way or this way or this way or this way and it's the same thing it's just sort of you know it just you could spend the rest of your life exploring either of those things and um, I find yeah. that really appealing yeah and so you've already mentioned the the fact that you have a show taking place right now talk about the garden and the like genesis of this show and then what it in actually com is comprised of now right well early on with making ceramics when i um i started with the hand building and then um i think after about nine months then i went to i wanted to start learning the wheel and the wheel obviously is very challenging so once i started learning the wheel i decided to challenge myself to make pieces that would be all wheel thrown and I started making these robot planters. So they're like heads that are planters that are robots. And I made, I don't know, 25 or 30 of them. And they're pretty good size. And I had met Scott LaFleur, you know, through the botanical garden world and through friends and horticulture, that kind of thing. And I reached out to him and said, hey, I have like 25 of these robot planters. Um, you know, at Sherman, you have lots of, you know, planters and collections of begonias and succulents. Would you like to take these for a few months and just, you guys can pot them up and just have them there as a folly and just so they get used. Not to sell them or anything like that, but just so they'd have a purpose. And he said, uh, that sounds great, but you know what we'd really need is like a summer exhibit. Um, and we need something with height and something with, you know, that had a wow factor. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> and he's like, well, we're talking five or eight feet tall. And I'm thinking like, what am I do? Like robot totems that seem crazy. And at that time, <laughs> you know, at that time I didn't have my own kiln. So the idea of, you know, making, I like, there's no way I could do that. So oddly I sort of, 
I put, I had forgotten about that. And then I kind of evolved into doing these totems. So I did some totems in my garden and then Sunset Magazine did a little uh, article on the garden. And the first page of that article was this, it's like a propeller vertebra sculpture I made. So it was this idea of, you know, your, your spine propelling you, but like the spinal pieces were actually propellers. And it looks like whalebone or something like that, but they chose that as the thing. And so I had clients who had seen that and said, well, if you want to do sculptures in our garden, um, you know, we'd love it. And I was like, well, of course you'll have them then. Um, so we did, um, <laughs> we did these white euphorbia. So like euphorbia cooperi, those kind of like really sculptural, weird euphorbias from Africa. Um, I did those yeah. in white ceramic. And then from Instagram, Rogers Gardens down in Newport Beach said, you know, one of the designers said, we would love to have this in one of our more modern beds. We're trying to do, you know, something different here. And then it came full circle because Scott, you know, this is like five minutes from Sherman Library. And, and so Scott had seen this whole pro, uh, pro, um, progression. And um, anyway, so that's basically how it came about. And they offered that I do this, this summer exhibit. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Dustin Gimbel is a landscape designer based in Southern California. His very first public exhibition is up now at the Sherman Library and Gardens in Corona Del Mar. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week. If you're listening to my words right now, then I know you are really, really with me on this Cultivating Place journey, and I am so happy to have you here with me. I just can't say it enough. I am so glad, and I feel real humility around the new listeners and new listener supporters to this work. And so I really wanted to take this moment to check in with you. How are we doing How is Cultivating Place showing up for you? Are there topics or people you'd like to hear? Is there a focus you keep hoping for but I haven't gotten to yet? If you're a subscriber to the monthly email, one of which went out last week, are there certain kinds of information you'd like more of or less of? I would really like to hear more from you, and we have a few things in the works this fall to help us on this front, including lots of public speaking events, some of which are free and all of which are reasonably priced in support of the hosting organizations, garden clubs and botanic gardens, museums and foundations. Check out the events calendar to hear more. Until we may have the chance to interact in person, oh, the day, it is out there. I really would love to hear from you. Where do you live? Why do you garden? How long have you listened? What do you like and what would you like to see improved? I am all ears, my friends, all ears. And thank you again for your listening and supportive attention and for being here now. We're back now to our conversation with Dustin Gimbel, landscape designer and outdoor ceramic artist. His current show, Sculptura Botanica, is now at the Sherman Library and Gardens in Corona del Mar, and it has been extended through October 2020. 
Well, I mean, this is the other lesson I would have for artists. You know, if you can afford it, you know, and there's obviously lots of ways to do things, but having your own equipment and being able to make things without having to ask permission is a huge thing. Cause I wouldn't have been able to do this without already having taken the leap of saying, okay, I'm going to buy the equipment. Cause I'd looked into what it would cost to do an MFA because I was thinking, you know, maybe I should explore this, um, you know, go, go a different career path. So I looked into it and for what a year of university, I could kit out an entire studio of all the equipment that I would need. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to do that and see how that goes. And then if I still feel like I want to get an MFA, I could do that. So that's what I did. And um, yeah, it was back in August last year, end of August, I met with Scott and Aaron, the lead horticulturist there at Sherman Library. And uh, originally I thought that they would just say like, oh, here's the, you know, formal garden. We'd like to have three sculptures here. And I would say, okay, you know, like clap my hands and like, we're done. But then, um, you know, they start to walk around the ground, uh, grounds and they're saying, um, well, we'd need one here and we need something in the conservatory and maybe something hanging from this lath house. And uh, of course, you know, water feature here and, you know, some of your cactus sculptures in the cactus garden and then the central garden needs something and then there's the fern garden and then we, you know, so it was like, oh, so you're talking 15 large-scale sculptures minimum and then other sculptures and other work in other areas. <laughs> so I got, yeah, I just got right to work. And so how long were you working to create and produce all that ended up in the Sculptura Botanica exhibition at the Sherman Library and Gardens in Corona del Mar, right? Isn't that right? Yeah, Corona del Mar. Yeah. It's right on PCH and that sort of, you know, like boutique area of uh, Newport Beach. Yeah. Um, it was nine months of work. Wow. And I did, uh, I think it worked out to like 175 sculptures. So there's um, a lot of small pieces like the aeroids. And then there's, you know, some of the bigger pieces like the Equicetum Towers, which are like, I think about just under nine feet tall. But yeah, it was a lot of work. I, I spent most of September just doing some experiments, doing a lot of sketching. And then I started working out how many hours it would take. And then I looked at like how many hours I could do per week. And then I kind of sketched out you know, where every piece would go and then just started working and just sort of going like, right, that's in the bank, <laughs> done, next one, next one, next one. And do you have a studio there at your house? Are you creating these somewhere else? Where did you store all yes. of these while you were working? <laughs> well, um, I have a two-car garage that I've turned into the studio. And then I have an <laughs> old shed that's like, 10 by 12, that is the kiln glaze room that I've refurbished for that. And so would make the pieces in the, the garage and then move them over the shed and then fire them and glaze them and then um, wrap them up and box them. And then that was one thing that Sherman Library and Gardens helped out with a lot. They have a storage space there at the garden. And so I would box up pieces and take them down. And did you like go to the storage unit and count every like week or so and be like, okay, wait, how many left? How many more? Well, I, yeah, I had a, um, I had like a bullet point of what I needed to make. And so it was sort of like, you know, knocking the list off. Um, but I was also kind of creating new things as I would go along. So some things that I originally imagined didn't make it into the show. And then other things that I hadn't at the onset ended up being like some of the things I love the most that got Ooh. in there. 
So describe those. Well, one of them that was uh, a new piece, I mean, most of the pieces in this show are new for me. The only things I had done before were the um, cactus sculptures. Um, but I did uh, this piece that I call the blue agave, which is um, basically looks like a giant asparagus, but it's the, you know, the spear of the agave as it comes out before it fruits and uh, without the, um, the leaves, because I felt like trying to do the leaves would, you know, just makes it like you're totally just copying the plant, where if you just take that one part of the plant, and then it's sort of like a cobalt blue. So it really like, you know, it's this powerful color, but also um, when I was deciding to make it blue, I thought um, it kind of harkens to that um, Moroccan garden kind of a blue. Yeah, um, yeah, it definitely mm -hmm. does, yeah. So the blue agave, are there other, like were there other great, inspirations or surprises along the way as you were creating for this show? Yeah, the aeroids I hadn't thought of until the end. So I did a series, there's about 40 of them. Um, they stand um, from 18 inches to like 28 or 30 inches tall. Um, but they're sort of a mishmash of all the aeroid plants. Mm -hmm. So you get a lot of uh, erysema vibes. You get a lot of calla lily, um, you know, amorphophallus or um, dracunculus kind of a thing. But the idea of that was one of the plants I wanted to have that sense of awe of like when you see a new plant in a botanic garden, you're like, oh, my God, that's incredible. So each one of them is different. So the uh, either the shape of the spathe or the color of the spadix or, or the detailing of the spadix is different. None of them repeat totally although they there are sort of veins of things mm -hmm. um so that one was really fun because i tried doing it a couple different ways and finally i i did this sculpting technique where you just basically you're taking a tube that comes out of extruder and then you're altering it kind of like um you would do for fashion i guess um where you're you're cutting into it and pulling back parts and um you know shaping it and then it comes to life I also did uh, marbled clay on those, which I thought would be kind of fun because it it kind of s seems like wood because it's, it's those browns and blacks and mm -hmm. cream cream colored tones, and that would be another thing that would make people stop and think. The other piece I would say that was um, probably a surprise to me was I knew that I wanted to do something. They they have a two story tall laugh house in the middle of the garden. It's a really cool structure. And uh, it's just garden beds, uh, garden beds and paths that run through it. And so in the very center, you could hang something. And originally, I thought I would do giant Samaras, so the um, maple leaf seeds, or the maple yeah. seeds, yeah, uh, and have them spinning on a motor and have this sort of like, you know, like infinity falling of Samaras. But because a lot of the stuff in the garden is tropical, um, I decided that the banana flower would be more interesting because I feel like it's something that's less well known. And uh, the stem is so naturally sculptural as, as is the flower itself. And so we have a, I don't know, it's like probably 12 or 14 foot uh, giant banana flower that is the center of this laugh house. Um, and it's um, very unnatural colors. It's a, a bluish purple stem and this sort of mottled pinky cream um, glaze. It's really cool. It's really cool. And I've only seen it in pictures, but, um, 
the and the fact that it was this pendant that you use that that ceiling or you know roof lathe space instead of building up to it coming down from it just felt really coolly organic and dynamic yeah i thought that was that was very inspirational oh thanks yeah i think it it's an interesting one because i um Obviously, you know, nobody knows who I am. So I can be in the garden and watch the visitors have reactions to the sculptures. <laughs> and it's a space that um, there's other things to distract people in that space. So they don't, I've never seen someone actually see it first thing. And I think also people aren't expecting some big sculpture hanging there. Right. So they'll notice other things. There's a big, there's a concrete pelican that is really popular in there. And they'll notice them. Oh, and then they'll go, whoa. Because they'll see, you know, just like totally um, takes up that space. Um, so it's kind of fun to watch people have that wow moment with it. Yeah. Do you, so is this your first big public exhibition, Dustin? Oh, absolutely. This is a quantum leap. I've never, I've never made so much That's work awesome. in my life. Yeah. That was <laughs> really awesome. And are the sculptures for sale? Are they on permanent display there? They are for what? sale. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And do you have plans to do more exhibitions? I'd love to. I haven't, um, I mean, to be honest, this was such a marathon for me. So what I did was I, you know, when I sat down and worked out, okay, this is how many hours it would take. And this is how many kiln firings. I, I kind of roughed out all that. I thought there's no way I can keep doing landscaping full time and do this. And um, because it was such a cool opportunity, I said, okay, I'm going to go to three days a, or I'm going to go four days a week landscaping. And I'm going to work three days a week on sculpture. So I would, uh, and I also hired a friend to be my studio assistant. And so he and I'd work on Fridays and everything I couldn't do just by myself. So a lot of the extrusions and different things where you need someone else to steady something, whatever, we'd work together and then prep for the weekend. And then I'd work through the weekend and also nights. So it's just been nine month marathon. And then something well, I'm sure people listening to this know this, but like something about the pandemic makes everybody want to fix up their garden or their house. Yeah. And I, I thought I was going to be like unemployed for the rest of the year because landscaping is not essential. Mm. And I've never been busier. Yeah. So um, I'm working like 12 hour days to do landscaping. So I would love to like look for other exhibitions and keep the momentum going. But right now I'm just trying to take care of my landscaping business, which I, I wouldn't say I've neglected, but I, you know, I cut back on a bit um, for the exhibition, but now I'm sort of rowing back. But I would love to, you know, if someone wants me to make a, an exhibition of insects or something else, like completely different from botanical, I think that would be awesome. Right. And, you know, as we're sort of coming full circle in the conversation, when you when you think about this path that you've been on, with the gardens and the plants in the gardens and then the sculpture and it sort of taking on a life of its own and now being out there in public in the world in an even bigger way, you know, and then you layer on top of that, the pandemic that you just talked mm. about and the, um, you know, the cultural upheaval and reckoning in our world right now are there are there things that have intensified in terms of importance in your mission with what you do as a result of these things have have different things kind of crystallized for you dustin 
Well, I mean, I think for, you know, for this exhibition, it, for me, it was more about joy and wow. And I would love to, um, you know, think about something more deeply that would be, uh, you know, more affecting. And um, I don't know what that is yet, but I think um, something more thoughtful would be awesome and uh, something more profound. But it's still at a, um, you know, simmering the background, but it's definitely something I've been thinking about. Um, and um, I don't think it would be difficult to do. I think it would be just finding the right vein to mine because there's so much there. Um, but also like, you know, doing it in a way that's um, respectful and um, in the right direction. Well, and I would say, you know, that in this moment of so many urgencies colliding, the power of joy and wow is pretty great. And if your version of joy and wow can get us to think about or see the spaces we're in differently, that shift in perspective is also potentially very powerful. I mean, I would love if people saw my art and they were inspired to make something in their own gardens. I think that would be awesome. Mm -hmm. um, I think people giving themselves permission to make art in their gardens or buy art and have it in their gardens. And um, I just think it, it really adds just the way that, that plants add to your life. Um, sculpture and art in the garden can add to your life. So um, I hope that people do that. In the, in the hand-making, hands-on part of the art and the sculpturing of these forms, it, it, is there that sort of flow and connection that I, I, I think most gardeners would relate to in how they work with plants or the soil? Is there something akin there? I think absolutely. I think, you know, in, in the same way that my landscape design is in a hobby, the, the sculptures that I, were, that I was making as a hobby then became another job. So there are moments where you have that pure, um, you know, you're just creating and you're just letting it, you know, see where things go, like gardening and sort of like, I'll let, it, I'll let these annuals grow up and if I get sick of them, I'll weed them out or whatever. Um, so I have those moments, but then, once there was that focus and a timeline, because we, we had said, okay, this is May 15th, this is when we're opening, this is when we're, you know, then it was like, okay, you have a goal. So a lot of it became sort of tight wire because things would explode in the kiln or, you know, I'd never made these before. So it's like, how do I engineer this? But yeah, I think definitely if you're doing it for your own garden, absolutely, there's that therapy and yeah, that sort of, I know, profound joy. And it's also that you're in the moment Mm -hmm. Um, especially like, you know, if you're wheel throwing or something like that, like you can't focus on anything else. You have to be engaged in that. Um, so for that it's still therapeutic, but yeah. As we sort of draw to a close here, is there anything else you would like to add about your work or your kind of, you know, trajectory in life and, um, how it might impact other gardeners or how we think about gardening? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to do more site-specific um, sculptures moving forward that would be permanent. 
Um, obviously, the sculptures I did for this show are temporary, but site-specific. So I think it'd be cool to have uh, sculptures that would allow for plants to grow up around them. Um, so that's something I'm interested in. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm just open to seeing kind of what, you know, what people's needs of art, you know, if they come to me and what we can create. I think the, you know, part of the joy is just saying, okay, here's the remit. What are you going to create? Um, and you can check out my, my selfless promotion, check out my Instagram, uh, at Dustin Gimbel designs. That's probably the easiest way to find some of this info. Um, and there's a lot of pictures of the pieces. Yeah, and I, I love your uh, your sort of video chats showing um, them in place, which are um, fun and give you a sense of the scale and the color and the interaction with the plants themselves. It's it's great. Yeah, I'm going to try to do one of each sculpture for the next, I think we're, we have eight more weeks or so of the garden. And so I want to get all the major sculptures with a little um, a little discussion of what I was thinking and um, yeah, I think people, they like that sort of atmospheric. Yeah. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Oh, for me as well. Thank you so much. Dustin Gimbel is a landscape designer and large-scale outdoor ceramic artist inspired by the botanical world and based in Southern California. He shared with us today his journey working his way through school and some notable plantsman internships to this summer installing his first public exhibition of ceramic art at the Sherman Library and Gardens in Corona del Mar. The show, entitled Sculptura Botanica, is up through October. Join us again next week when we're joined by gardener, designer, and horticulturalist Wamboy Ippolito on tracing the history of our own plant love and the legacies and histories of the plants we all love. Join us then. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and listeners supported through CultivatingPlace.com. To see images of the dramatic and colorful botanical abstractions, such as the blue agave and the otherworldly banana flower created by Dustin, check out this week's episode notes at CultivatingPlace.com. Thank you, as always, for listening. Together, we share the joy and the wow of our shared impulse to garden. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.